Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Josh Mann, pastor of Youth Ministries, as he begins. We start a new series today. Awesome. Pretty exciting. <clears throat> so, the name of this series is Sacred Places, which has one of the words from the last conversation series we had, Sacred Conversations. And the reality is that scattered along each of our journeys from wherever we came from to wherever we are today are specific space-time places that are of deep significance to us. Because at that place, something significant happened. Something clicked. A decision was made. And so the world is full of wonderful, great places But there are particular ones that for you take your mind back to a day long ago. And they hold deep, deep significance. Um, We're going to look at different significant geographic places in the Bible of significance. And kind of unpack what made that place special. And this series will fail though if it doesn't take you back in your memory to revisit some of those. And even to... Hopefully share some of those around a meal or over a cup of coffee. Uh, But I'm curious, where does your mind go geographically when I say all that? I want to hear from you. What's, before we even begin, what's a sacred place in your past? Home? Tennessee. The ocean. Church. Campus life. Granddaughter. Grandma's house. I just got back from three weeks of camp in the last four weeks, and uh, which is totally fun to me. Camp is a sacred place for many students. Uh, Someone in the last service said Las Vegas, which I was kind of surprised. <laughs> they had a good church experience or something. A girl last night was like, driving in the car. But what I liked about the varied nature of them is, A, they can be anywhere. And B, when we hear your sacred place, it just doesn't even register for us. No offense. It's just like, Pittsburgh, cool. But for you, if we were to take the time, there'd be a whole story about why that place was significant. And we shouldn't forget these places. They make us who we are. And they're a testimony of God's faithfulness in our life. And so I'm going to unpack one today, but I let your mind wander. That's fair. And uh, recall what you learned there, what happened, and why it's significant. The first place we're going to camp out at uh, in this series, is the Jordan River. So I invite you to turn with me to Numbers 13, which is page 146 in the Pew Bible. The first place is the Jordan River. It's just a river. It's not a really special or dramatic. It's not like as wide as the Mississippi or as long. It's, it's just the Jordan River. But oh man, to the Israelites, the Jordan River is huge. 
Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Numbers says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So at this point in the story, the Israelites number about two and a half million people. And Moses is their leader, and he says, Choose twelve people, one of each tribe, to go out and explore the land I am giving to you. In fact, in the Deuteronomy chapter 1 telling of this exact same story, it's very interesting. It's worded slightly different. It says, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land and bring back a report about which route we are to take. This land has been promised to this family, to this people group, for hundreds of years. This dates all the way back to Abraham, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to set you apart, and I want, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And through your family line, every ethnic family line on earth will be blessed. And embedded in that promise was a piece of property. And this promise was passed on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, at some point in their history, uh, this group of this family, <clears throat> of which the 12 tribes come out of, they sold their youngest brother into slavery. He ended up going down to Egypt. His name was Joseph. He, God's favor was on them. He, he rose to power and ended up being like second in command in Egypt right around the time a famine broke out in the entire region. Joseph had known this was coming and saved up grain and eventually his family comes down to buy grain. Long story short, the whole family moves down to join him because that's the only place with food. So his family grows and is blessed, but they know Egypt's not their final destination. It's not the place they were made for or the place made for them. But for now, it's, it's where they're at. Over time, the Israelites multiplied and grew and grew and grew. And the Egyptians realized, uh, if they got mad at us any day, they could just totally revolt and wipe us out. And this is Egypt, you know, so we need to keep it like Egyptians in charge. So they enslaved them. And for 400 years, the Israelites, God's chosen people, with a special destiny, an inheritance that's been promised to them, spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt. To me, that's a picture of many of God's other people who were made for things and places, yet spend significant periods of their life in bondage not experiencing all he wanted them to. He ends up sending Moses to lead them out of slavery with the ten plagues, and, and he leads this massive group of people out. And you remember, maybe, they, they come to the Red Sea, which is a sea, <laughs> big. And Barbara Fletcher spoke on this moment about a year ago, and she said, she said something in a way I'll never forget it. They, they come to the Red Sea and there's the sea in front of them. There's a mountain to their left. And as they look behind them, the Egyptians are coming. And I don't think this is the picture they had in mind when they first imagined the promise being given to them. Barbara said, she quoted the, the Bible that day when she said, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Talk about the most counterintuitive posture at the moment with an army on your tail and an ocean in front of you. Just be still. 
relax. Being still is what God commanded them to do. That's what obedience would look like in that moment. And the reason they couldn't did was because they trusted. That even though these didn't see anything hopeful, they knew that God was good and had promised. And Moses put his staff in the water and the Red Sea parted and they crossed on dry land. Unbelievable. I mean, they walked away from this place with the Red Sea in their rearview mirror going, did that just happen? In the 10 plagues before it, God was ready and had what it took to lead his people into the place he had planned for them. Two years go by. Why? Well, they're making their way across the Sinai Peninsula headed towards the promised land, Canaan, modern-day Israel. And two years go by, and this is where we pick up the story. So the Lord says to Moses, send men to explore which route you should take to get into your land. Okay, so he sends the men out. Look at verse 25 of chapter 13. At the end of 40 days, this group of 12 returned from exploring the land. They came back to the Israelite community and they reported to them this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. It's amazing, just like we'd heard. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. Go down to verse 30. Caleb, one of the twelve, goes, hold on. Don't give a, what? No. We should go up and take possession of that land. We can do it. We can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, no, we can't attack those people. They were huge. There were lots of them. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They weren't going into this land to decide if they should pursue it. They were going into the land to decide which route to take. And yet 10 of the 12 come back and are like, oh, uh uh-uh, we do not have what it takes. The beginning of chapter 14 says they raised their voices all night and wept aloud. If only we died in Egypt or in this desert. Caleb again says in verse 7, guys, the land we pass through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Don't be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Ten and two. Here's what happened. How could you be promised something again and again and again and again and again for hundreds of years and be on the doorstep of receiving this and be like, oh no, 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 we don't have what it takes. We can't do this. Here's why I think. I think 400 years of Egyptian slavery had completely destroyed their self-confidence. Sure, they'd seen God do some amazing things along the way up until this point, the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. But they didn't believe if they were in the equation that much was possible because of where they came from. I think this is the power that 
years of bondage to slavery or sin or pain can have on us. We become so familiar with that world that it's hard for us to imagine ever living in a different place. That makes sense. We see this in, uh, in Depression-era generations where the very grit and determination that it required to get through that period in our nation's history, and of which many did. However, when the context changed, many of those people were unable to change the way they lived. The settings had changed, but their mind, their understanding of themselves hadn't. And so many, their children and their children's children were able to enjoy the blessings that they had worked hard for, but they were never able to. We see this in abuse victims, where that traumatic of an experience ends up coloring their entire identity, that they have a hard time imagining themselves as being deserving of love and respect and capable of things that they really are capable for. But this has so defined them that it's hard to imagine them being anything else. We see this in addicts who've had years and years and years of choices which lead to mountains and mountains of shame. And it's this weird dichotomy of the destructive nature of their world is actually more comfortable and safe than leaving it for something unknown. That's why it's hard. Because on a bad day, I go to something that in the moment makes me feel better. But over time, I get nervous to face life without that. And I maybe don't believe it's possible. And so I'm unwilling to receive what I legitimately could and should pursue and have. I think we see this in ourselves. Because you and I each have a past. We've got some punk who said stupid stuff to us when we were in grade school. We've got wounds from parents or relatives or friends. We've got failures in our past. And it's very easy to define ourselves and what we're ever capable of experiencing or accomplishing in light of those. I see this sometimes even in myself and in other Christ followers where sometimes we come off as a weak and wimpy bunch. We're drawn to Christ because we understand we need him. But we have a hard time believing the things he says about us. And it was echoed in this story. God had what it took. He was ready. They had what it took or he would not have led them to this point, but they weren't ready. And so they saw... This crossing over process as too scary, too big. And they refused to receive it. And God took it personally. Numbers 14, verse 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt, God says? How long will they refuse to believe in me? You can see in in Numbers 13, verse 33, what's really going on. It says, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. 
No, you did not look like grasshoppers to them. You feel like a grasshopper and you project that on anyone's perceptions of you. You feel small, insignificant, insecure, and you walk into situations where you actually have what it takes, but you see yourself as a grasshopper and you think everyone else does too and you quit before you even begin. That's what years and years and years a bondage, slavery, sin does. That's what failures do if we look to find our identity from them. I want to fast forward to Joshua 3. God got upset and he said, okay, I'll forgive them for this, but not one person who saw what I did in Egypt and who saw the parting of the Red Sea will ever see this promised land because they refuse to receive it. He said, you will spend one year in this desert for every day you were exploring that land. And this entire generation will die off before I give the promised land to their children. Those attitudes sometimes take a long time to die off. But I want to show you the difference between the first group that explored the land and the second. Same land, same family. Just a couple years difference. Joshua chapter 2, verse 23. Joshua had sent two men out exploring. They started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua and told him everything that had happened. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear. Because of us. Uh, dust your shoulder off. This is a new batch. This group has never spent a day in slavery. Same exact makeup, ethnic line, DNA. But one group had spent an entire life in slavery and one group hadn't spent a day. And this group was able to believe what God saw in them and what God wanted to do through them, much easier than this group. This group goes into the land and is like, let's do it. Let's do it. We got this. We totally got this. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. Joshua told the people, verse 5, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow... It's going to be epic. The Lord will do amazing things among you. Verse 8. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to go first. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Okay. This is crazy. So the Jordan River is not a real dramatic river. It's probably 10 to 12 feet deep, most of it. So not crazy deep. And it's only about 30 to 100 feet wide as it kind of winds its way down from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. So Israel, modern day Israel's here, the Mediterranean, and there's this one river that connects Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, and over here is Jordan and Saudi Arabia. So they're going to cross right here. But it happens to be during uh, harvest season, so it's at flood stage. Well, at flood stage, this thing like goes on steroids, and it's now a mile wide. A mile wide across, it's rushing, 
And there's two and a half million folks. Places, people. (laughs) Here we go. Tell you what, we're going to have the priests. Real tough group they are. Uh, And I want you to go and tell them to put their foot in the water. It's been promised to them. God provided for them in the desert. And he asked them to show their obedience by doing something that makes no sense to them. Because in this moment, nothing seems to suggest that this is going to go the way they say it's going to go. But God wants to know that their trust is in him, not in these circumstances. So in this moment, nothing's changed. And Joshua tells the priest to put your foot in the river. That's a fast river. That's a long river. Like, if I was one of the priests, I'd be like, God, um, like, the closer my foot gets to the river, can you, like, start parting it a little bit? So it's, it's just like, yeah, okay, well, okay. Yep, it's going to work. Uh, yeah, trust me. No, like, right here, nothing's changed. And the question of was, would they trust and would they obey? And on that day, a new generation was able to receive their inheritance what God intended for them all along because they stepped into a mile-long rushing river. And it says in Numbers, in Joshua 3, verse 15, As soon as their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. That would have been insane to be there at that moment where you're like, this isn't going to work. This is, it's going to work. It's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. They're stepping in. They're doing it. They're doing it. It stops. Wow. Did that just happen? It did. Because a God who always intended to do it finally had people who believed in what God believed about them and were willing to trust and obey wherever he led. And this day was so significant. Chapter 4 says, choose 12 men and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan and to set these up on a monument wherever you go from here. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them. The Lord stopped the flow of the Jordan and we crossed on dry land. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? Everyone gets past and you're walking away from the Jordan and it's going and you're like, did that just happen? The Jordan River will forever go down as the last moment the people of God finally trusted and acted And the last barrier between them and what God intended for them was removed. You see, this is not some cliched thing. Unbelief in God, what he says and what he believes about us, and disobedience always leaves us in the desert. Unbelief and disobedience equals the desert. But faith or trust and obedience led them to the promised land and it leads us to places that would have not otherwise been possible 
is that we're made for us. I want to tell you about a sacred place in my life. It's uh, conference room A, right outside the door. And let me tell you why. A little over a year ago, I, I shared some of me and my wife's infertility journey. And, uh, and we'd had a miscarriage and then three years of, of infertility. And it was, it's a stressful and painful world. And it's kind of all-consuming. But a godly voice in our life believed that the Lord had told them that Becca would indeed get pregnant. And we needed to trust that and in obedience move to a place of gratitude. Although nothing surrounding us had changed. It took us a while, but we, as I shared that weekend, we finally got there. And did we ever? It freed up mental space and heart space. And we enjoyed peace in the months that followed that. We didn't know how long that would take. After about six months, uh, someone shared in one of our staff meetings about a young life couple who had gotten pregnant and they were wondering if someone would be willing to adopt this child. And it kind of brought up something with us that we hadn't thought about. Now, we had always intended on adopting at some point, maybe on the back end of our family, but... Here we were, and we were just waiting. But we prayed and, and, and felt peace. It, it ended up not happening, but it prompted this conversation. And I was really cautious at this point, because there's another story in the Bible where God promised someone would have, you know, that Sarah would get pregnant, and it was taking too long. And he kind of took matters into his own hands and, like, hurried the process up, and it messed everything up. And so I was very nervous that we were just getting impatient, and therefore... Adoption seemed like a good idea. I just, we, we said, God, we'll, we'll wait as long as you want. Whatever you want to do in our hearts in the meantime, you know, feel free. But we slowly began to feel peace pursuing that. We checked with some other godly folks in our life and, and we got their blessing. So our hearts ended up leaning towards international adoption and in Ethiopia. And we began to look into the process. And then being the very responsible husband that I am, I crunched the numbers yeah. International adoption is a very thorough and long process meant to keep it above board and and the finances associated with it are steep and I realized we did not have what it took. And uh, yet we continued to feel like God was leading us towards it. And I'm like, no, there's Bible verses about like counting the cost before you move forward and, uh, you know, being wise and... I was taking stock in my wisdom. This doesn't make sense. And I'm not going to start something that we don't see how we can get to the end of. But we felt God continued to lead. Josh, Becca, will you trust me and begin a journey that you don't have all the resources to complete? Sure. Because some folks write support letters. And they've got really nice, generous friends. Yeah, Totally. Okay, thank you for trusting me. I want you to begin this process and here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey me in not asking a single person for money. He's like, Josh, you trust support letters more than you trust me. You trust your friends. What if you never asked anyone? 
It took me a little to be convinced of that. It took my wife a little to convince her of that. Okay, this doesn't really add up. This doesn't make sense. We're just going to get to some point in the process where we're going to run out. And But hey, crazier stuff's happened. So we, we began to pursue the process. And I want to read a blog entry from my wife's blog on March 13th, 2010. She talks in it about being middle-class Americans living in the 21st century who rarely have to literally rely on God for anything. We like to be self-reliant and independent. Concepts are country values. We respect our third world brothers and sisters and the joy and intimacy they have in trusting God for their next meal, but we flee from any situations like that personally. The next day, our friend Rebecca Anderson listened to a message online, and she believed in her heart that this message was for us. It talked about international breakthroughs, money, investments to the nations, and she was so excited to share this with Josh and me when we returned to work. She gave us her notes and told us to be expecting God to come through in a big way soon. Josh kept saying all week, can't wait to see how God does this. I told God I would believe as much as I could and asked him to increase my faith. At 10 a.m. on Friday morning, I wandered down to my box to get my mail. There were deposit receipts, a Costco receipt, a World Impact contribution envelope, and a blank envelope. I set these things on my desk and started sorting and opening. I noticed some cash in the blank envelope. Weird. People are usually hesitant to leave cash in our boxes. I set it down and returned a phone call. I put the Costco receipt aside, filed away the deposit receipts, and went back to the blank envelope. I peeked inside and saw at least two $100 bills. Whoa. I checked the outside of the envelope for a name. I checked my email, my voicemail. I went downstairs and checked with our accountant. You didn't put an envelope with cash in my box, did you? Of course not, she replied. I asked the same thing, the receptionist, and she said, no, I got hot. My heart began to beat faster. Could this be for us? No, 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 no. So I wandered around for a minute or so, waiting for someone to stop me to tell me who the money was for. I went downstairs to find Josh, but I knew he was in a meeting. I called his cell phone. No answer. I finally took out all the money. Twenty $100 bills. I went to find Rebecca, breathing the words, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. All the way. She was in a meeting down the hall, with Josh, no less. I looked at her through the window, holding the envelope in my hand. She stood up. She knew. She opened the door. Josh turned around. I knew it, she said. I knew it. That's for you. I looked at Josh. I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. Is this from you, I asked her. No, she said, but it's for you. I placed the envelope on the table and said to Josh, there's $2,000 in there. It was just in my box this morning. I tried to find out whose it was and where it came from. Josh's mouth dropped. Then he smiled. Logan Martin, also in the meeting, innocently asked, Am I missing something? (laughs) Rebecca told him about hearing the message, about her prayer all week that God would do it soon. And here we were five days later, holding a tattered envelope containing $2,100 bills. I started to cry. This has never happened to me, not even close. My faith is too small, it's too small. Josh reminded us that for our next phase of money, 
due in about a week. We needed $6,500. And as of 9 a.m. that morning, we'd only had 4527 in our bank account. Rebecca just kept saying, I knew it. This is for you. This is only the beginning. As Joss and I relived this miracle last night, we prayed that whoever gave us this money would be richly blessed for their obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit placed on their heart. Because they gave generously, perhaps even sacrificially, God's glory and provision and power are on display. Whoever that person, couple, or family is, thank you. May God richly bless you for your faithfulness. This is a long post, but all glory to God. Another virtual altar is built today so that we never forget that we were at the end of what we had to offer and God provided for us, just like he said he would. We are so grateful God did it. We will never forget this gift on March 12th. Someday we will have the pleasure of telling our baby all the stories about God moving in the hearts of people on their behalf. You want to know what was maybe most significant about this for me? How difficult it was for me to receive this. I would have had no problem with this being your story. I would have celebrated with you. I would have been thrilled. I know God does that. Amazing. Praise God. But me? There's a whole lot of other needs in the world today. And that's a whole lot of money. I'm not always a good kid. (laughs) I feel more comfortable receiving discipline from God than blessings. It showed I've, I've got a little grasshopper inside of me. And this didn't fit my grid. But God had asked us to trust and obey. And it led to a breakthrough that we'll never forget. The Israelites experienced that at the Jordan River. And you've experienced it probably somewhere. Do you remember where? You have been listening to Josh Mann, pastor of Youth Ministries at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m., and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Shine the light.